Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Passing Shot, the tennis podcast by fans. I'm Joel. I'm Kim. And today on Top 8, we are looking back on the most dramatic moments in Olympics tennis over the last two decades. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. everybody welcome back to another serving of the passing shot and whilst the tours look like hopefully they are getting back up and running soon this week we are going to be looking at what would have been for many players a definite highlight of the season and that would have been the olympics which opening ceremony i think was going to happen this weekend. And of course, tennis uh, has been an Olympic event since uh, 1988 as a medal, as a medal sport. And yeah, we're going to, Kim, we're going to look back at some of the, the key moments, the, the most dramatic moments that have happened in the Olympics, in tennis, um, since since the turn of the millennium. Yeah, we are uh, going to be looking back over the last, well, 20 years, which is mad, um, which is five five Olympics worth, I think. Uh, Sydney, Athens, Beijing, London, and Rio. I love that. It's like a good quiz question, isn't it, Joel? Like name the <laughs> like name the last few Olympics in order. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's mad to think that it would have been this weekend. You know, twenty fifth. I think everything was going to be starting off. And I mean, I love the Olympics, don't you? I mean, I normally yes, the tennis is great, but I you know I love the fact that it's like a festival of sport you know, for two weeks and you suddenly start watching like random sports that you would never normally pay any interest <laughs> in, but suddenly you get really into it. It's it's great. I was watching a recap on the telly over the weekend and I, I definitely get into gymnastics. Oh, yes. And uh, I love a bit of gymnastics. I love a bit of rowing as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, obviously the Olympics provides, you know, it's a unique opportunity for many um you know for many athletes particularly obviously those you know it's it's a chance to kind of represent their country which you know in obviously with tennis you you know you're kind of playing for yourself you know for the majority of time on on the tour yes there's the you know the davis cup and the fed cup but the you know the olympics is a real opportunity to kind of do your nation proud and um you know it's something that doesn't come on very often which it makes it a very sort of important event that I think people look at and think if you can win a gold medal at the Olympics, then it can elevate you. Um, it can elevate you to a, a level that, you know, previously you may not have been at. Yeah, because a lot of players, uh, you know, try to get the, the golden slam, don't they? So uh, career golden slam, all four slams plus a gold medal. So, you know, not too many not too many, you know, top players have actually managed to do that. Some of them we'll be discussing in our countdown uh, this week. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting, wasn't it? Because some people don't really view the Olympics like for tennis as sort of the be all and end all. But then, you know, I think when you do get a medal, you probably say, oh, actually, yeah, it's it's worth an awful lot. <laughs> you know, you can't 
I don't think anyone would want to diminish the value of, of a gold Olympic medal. I mean, those things are like gold dust, you know, but for some, it, it really isn't a priority. Uh, you know, Dominic Team, for example, wasn't really fussed about it, was he? <laughs> You know, even if you don't get a medal, it's like just competing mm. and participating and being able to call yourself an Olympian. Yeah. You know, I feel like for a lot of pay- players is a very kind of special thing um, that, you know, they really you know want to achieve in their career. And um, yeah, we'll be kind of getting on to sort some of the moments that have kind of captured uh, the imaginations um, of the you know the world over over the last kind of couple of decades but before we kind of get into all of that we just want to raise a, a, a point uh, from our last podcast we did a bit of a catch-up and some of our listeners did get in touch with us uh, about the rankings a bit of the the podcast that we did to kind of talk about the fact that the ATP um, have introduced a sort of new a new uh, formula for their rankings that offers more flexibility and fairness. Uh, so apologies, we weren't aware of that when we were recording. So um, thank you for, for pointing that out. And um, yeah, it's great to see that it's kind of gone to a more flexible approach. I think now the, the you know, the period covered is 22 months um, instead of sort of a best 18 results. So I think that's, it's definitely a good step forward to kind of accommodate those players who who might just want to kind of sit at home whilst all the all the craziness sorts of sort of continues around them yeah absolutely and i uh i i think that's a great step and you know because not everyone is is in in the right kind of position to want to you know or to be able to kind of start playing again so it's definitely the fairest way of doing it for now uh, but let's move on to the main subject of today's pod uh, so our, our olympic countdown from the past two decades you know our most dramatic moments um thank you to our listeners and followers who kind of gave us their suggestions uh, some of those will be certainly discussed and uh I think that we'll have a few honourable mentions as well. But I'm going to begin, Joel, with number eight, which um, I this is one of my most memorable moments. But I don't think really it's necessarily for like the match itself, but more for the celebration that we saw afterwards, um, <laughs> which is quite random. But if, if you've seen it, uh, you probably know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, then go and YouTube it. But it's when uh, Stan and Federer won the doubles back in 2008 in, in Beijing. So they won the doubles gold. And, you know, Stan and Fed don't normally play doubles together. It's quite rare to see them playing. So the fact that they kind of combined to win the gold for Switzerland, uh, they beat the Bryans in the semis. They beat Bupati and Pays in the quarters. So really established doubles pairings. And then I think the final itself was a bit more straightforward against um, Espelin and Johansson, uh, Sweden. But yeah, I think this was um, quite a surprise, I suppose. I mean, obviously, they're two top singles players, but oh no, all expectation was really on Federer, you know, in the singles. So the fact that he was able to kind of walk away with a doubles gold was, um, you know, not the one he wanted, I, I suppose. But, but certainly it was probably a very nice way to end his uh you know olympic campaign because i think if i remember rightly he lost very early on uh in the singles yeah i think he lost to james blake uh mm. in the i think in the quarterfinals and as you said it was like really like all eyes on federer in the singles to see if he could you know win the, the gold medal and i think that was a really kind of you know that was a moment where you know if you kind of look back i think you know earlier in the season he had lost, uh, you know, in the French Open and Wimbledon finals to, you know, Rafa. 
and you know he hadn't really done much um in the previous olympics so it did feel like this was kind of an opportunity and i always think it's kind of interesting with where the olympics is in the sort of tennis season it almost does kind of open up that sort of redemption that redemptive kind of quality of you know of playing on the tour so that if it doesn't go right at you know in one part of the season well, you've got the, you know, you've got potentially the Olympics to kind of, um, you know, put it right. And, you know, I think they, you know, he did with the, you know, in, in doubles, it was probably not in the way that I think a lot of people were expected, uh, expected because as you said, Fed Rinker, you know, <laughs> that is, that was not something, that was not something um, that had, I don't think had even really had happened before. You know, it was obviously, I think they were just going to see how it went and, you know, <laughs> They just ended up in, in the final and they beat some really established kind of doubles pairings along the way. And, um, you know, it was a it was a great um, it was a great victory for them. And, uh, you know, to this day, of course, it's own, Federer's only only gold medal um, in the in the Olympics. And, um, yeah, it's it's in doubles, which, you know, I think is, you know, if you kind of think about it, it, it you would have you would have probably would have expected it more in the singles than the doubles. I suppose it just goes to show that, you know, if Federer started playing more doubles like regularly, you know, imagine if he played it at slams, he, he could potentially go and win, you know, doubles grand slams, I suppose. So he's obviously got the quality. Um, and when he teams up with another decent partner, he, you know, he's quite capable, obviously, of having success in the doubles game as well. And I mean, yes, it is his only gold. He's He's got a silver um, as well in the singles. But, um, you know, I suppose that will take away... Will it take away from his career the fact that he didn't win a golden singles? You know, are people going to question his goat status because he didn't like manage to get that one as well. I mean, they're still next year, obviously, and who knows? He may he may go and do it at the ripe old age of um, you know forty. But I don't know. Um, it's it's an interesting debate, and I suppose that just ties into like how much you know as a, as a tennis fan that you know you've personally put emphasis on the Olympics, but. Um, Talking about that celebration, Joel, I don't know if you remember, but like Stan lay down on the ground and Federer kind of blew on his hands and then like, I don't know, sort of ran, not ran them over Stan's body, but like (laughs) hovered them above Stan's body and like did this kind of like dance with his fingers. It was quite strange. I remember there was like a lot of, um, you know, talk about it at the time, but it is quite funny. There's, um, if anyone hasn't seen it, go and go and take a look. It sounds like they didn't really plan on getting to the final and have some sort of choreographed, uh, you know, victory celebration. So they just made it up. uh, They just made it up on the spot. Maybe it's a Swiss uh, tradition. I, I don't know. Do we have any Swiss listeners? Maybe it's it's some. I have. I haven't done my research on this. Maybe but... they were creating a new tradition. <laughs> well, maybe it's like their version of the Brian's like bump. You know, um, everyone has their own little little thing going on. Um, but yeah, I thought that you know this is kind of a it was. It was quite a surprise, a victory, because I, I suppose most people would have probably gone for a more established pairing like like the Bryans. Um, but yeah, it was a and probably I mean, I don't know how Switzerland fared in the medal table, but I can't imagine they would have had too many medals. So I'm sure this would have, you know, been a, a big one for for the Swiss contingent as well. Yeah, certainly. And I, I always kind of think, you know, when you think about sort of blockbuster singles, you know, singles players playing doubles together, I think this is, you know, arguably this is almost kind of the the, epit- the epitome of that. I don't think there's a, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't think of any sort of bigger achievements that, you know, two singles players coming together to play doubles have 
you know achieved certainly in the you know in the in the men's game and um and yeah it's just i think it's fast, fantastic and it was almost kind of like i think it's just kind of that achievement it's been crystallized in in the in beijing in 2008 and they've almost kind of been able to move on and you know they you know went and played davis cup together and they won the davis cup together um but really i think you know if we think about favorinka and, and federer i'll always kind of recall uh back to um beijing and, and 2008 yeah and also i suppose stan at that point hadn't won any slam so who knows how helpful this was in kind of on his journey to, to eventually becoming a slam champion. Um, but let's move on to our next one, Joel. Number seven, uh, we're staying in Beijing, 2008, and we're looking at a bit of a medal sweep going on for, for Russia in particular, because, um, we had, uh, the top three, you know, gold, silver, bronze, all going to Russian female players that year. Um, which is pretty astonishing. Uh, you know, I mean, in some ways it, <laughs> You know, at that time, you know, Russian Russian players were dominating uh, women's tennis. You know, you had the likes of Sharapova, Kuznetsova. I think Nadia Petrova was probably flying around. Um, you know, Dementieva, Dinara Safina, obviously. Um, so a whole host of Russians at the top of the game. But to do a complete clean sweep of the medal table is is pretty impressive. I know. And none of those medalists included Sharapova or Kuznetsova because um, if if you may recall, um, Dementieva won the gold and she beat Dinara Safina in the final who won silver. She And, and I was, I was going to look at the highlights. She really did not like that silver medal. Um, um, but um, yeah. And then in third was, um, and in third was... Uh, Vera Zvonareva. Ah, uh, Zvonareva. Yeah. Oh my God. I yeah. think, um, but Safina, sorry, but another final that she lost then, in I addition know. to her three she was on a 15 match. She was on a 15 match winning streak as well. Oh, um, so bad. Oh, gosh. But, but, but to be fair, I think Dementieva had beaten Serena um, in the. Um, in the in her route to kind of the final and that actually was i was also watching got caught watching the highlights of that and that was a really fun match but you know for russia um yes i feel like this was kind of almost like the golden age um you know of kind of russia women's tennis of recent you know of, of recent decades certainly mm. you know mishkina as well there was lots of lots of different players but um you know i think the fact that dementieva one was really interesting because you know we, we talk about dementieva as one of these players who has never She's never won a, a Grand Slam, and she's probably one of the best players to have never won, won a, a Grand Slam on, you know, on the on the WTA tour. But you know, the fact that she was able to, you know, get her moment and, and get a gold medal, um, you know, and to be, you know, and to be able to kind of call yourself Olympic champion, you know, that must have, you know, that must feel that must feel pretty good as a sort of as almost kind of as a replacement. Yeah, well, exactly. It's like kind of the next best thing, I suppose. Um, and oh God, ima- imagine if we had, you know three british women uh you know like topping the the olympic medals or you know get to the semi-finals and it's three out of four it's from the same country you just think oh it doesn't matter what happens now we're guaranteed you know a certain number of medals but i suppose you know at that time you know yes they were dominant and you know the top of the game and they're all kind of egging and pushing each other on so it was a very kind of competitive atmosphere um which is probably healthy for for success um, and I think Dementieva as well had previously got to an Olympic final um, 
and I think yes, she lost the Venus. Yeah, yeah, in Sydney. So obviously this was, you know, eight years later. It's a long time, but to finally kind of go all the way. And, you know, she's she was a player that, you know, did used to get very nervous and, you know, edgy, especially on her serve. So I'm sure that was a massive, massive relief. Um, and of course, they, you know, the Russian players as well, they'd won the Fed Cup quite a lot. You know, that those particular players, they were quite dominant in the, you know, the, the team event. So it was kind of cemented, yeah, like their status, I guess, at the top of the game. But I do remember, you know, quite clearly their their track seats that they were wearing that year and the three of them <laughs> with their their medals. It's quite a dominant image when I think back to that particular Olympics. Yeah, and I'm just kind of interestingly, I think there is an interesting point here around, you know, um, you know, if you look at the career of someone like Dementieva versus, you know, one of her compatriots like Mishkina. Now, Mishkina won uh, the French Open um, and, you know, Dementieva won, didn't win a Grand Slam, but won a gold medal. And, um, you know, it, it feels like Dementieva, I don't know if, if Mishkina, even though she won a Grand Slam, I feel like Dementieva is still sort of more like revered in sort mm. of like the tennis world even though she didn't win a grand slam it i think it still shows you like the you know the credibility i guess that the you know winning an olympic gold can do and that even if you as i said even if you haven't won a grand slam if you can still do it um you know at the olympics that can almost speak can even speak more volumes than you know winning you know, winning, as I said, winning a, a Grand Slam. And I think with, you know, if you compare them, I think almost kind of Mishkina, even though she won Roland Garros, I feel like she's become a little bit of a, you know, a, forgot, a forgotten player, whereas sort of Dementieva has, you know, I think her sort of, um, you know, her, her presence has lasted longer, you know, beyond, um, you know, beyond retiring. Yeah, I think that's that's totally a fair point. And I suppose as well with the Olympics, it is only once every four years. So the pressure's almost on, you know, even more because with Roland Garros, for example, you know, it comes around every year. But if, you know, you really prioritise the Olympics and it's absolutely crucial that you kind of get it right as your next chance, you know, might not be for four years. And, you know, God forbid you're then injured for the next one. Or, you know, it could be eight years before you next get a shot at it. So, um, just one last thing on this, Joel. Interestingly, um, I don't know, like, uh, for how long Dementieva was was coached, um, but by Safina's mother. <laughs> I don't know if this was at the time of, of that final, but that's another little, you know, sort of, um, I don't know, fun fact from, from Russian women's tennis that she was coached by Safina's mother. I think it was more in her, like, teenage Early years. Days. But I, yeah, early days. But I think, I, I just thought it was interesting in terms of, like, the... There always seems to be like, you know, a little bit of backstory. And I wonder whether that was a little bit of a backstory there. Um, because Safina, if you look at the highlights, Safina, I do not think was happy you know, with a silver medal. And you know how, you know, at the Olympics, you know, some players, you know, they you know, they lose and they're just like, oh, I'm just happy to represent my country. Well, I don't think Safina was in that sort of mood. Um, I think she genuinely felt in that third set she you know she she it was there for the taking and i think she um i i think she threw her racket and she got really like she she self-destructed essentially on the court and that was the you know that was essentially game set match to to, to dementieva but um it just shows you i think that drive and that sort of competitiveness that you know certainly i think was in and around sort of russian tennis at the time and it all as you said it just kind of spurred them on and it helped them achieve you know three 
a, a clean sweep in the you know in the women's tennis in 2008 which is an, an incredible an incredible achievement exactly and we're going to talk about another incredible achievement next because our number six well sixth moment is uh serena's uh double uh double gold medal um success in 2012 uh when the olympics was held at wimbledon uh so serena she absolutely routed maria sharapova <laughs> In the final. I mean, when does that not happen, Kim? I well, feel like it's the most. I know. We've spoken about it before. It's like one of the most non rivalries in tennis. I know, but this was love and one. I mean, it. I think. Oh, that is. That is just oh, painful. Yeah. I don't know what was going on with Sharapova. She was six love, three love down um, after 45 minutes. And I mean, yeah, it's not a competitive rivalry at the best of times, you know, apart from 04 when Sharapova won. But that is just insane. What a what a washout, you know, what a disastrous final in terms of competition. But um, I guess the main thing is Serena, you know, she won the singles gold. She became only the second woman to achieve a golden slam, which is obviously winning all four slams and um, a gold medal. So Steffi Graf had done it previously, but Serena managed to, to equal that. And then to top it off, she went and won the doubles gold with Venus, um, which I think was their third doubles gold, which is which is insane. You know, Serena has got <laughs> four gold medals uh, at the Olympics. Venus has actually got uh, four golds and a silver. Um, like they are racking up those medals. That That is amazing stuff. And I think, you know, to win the singles and the doubles gold in the same Olympics, that, that is not... Well, it... That's really not done very often at all. Yeah, no, I know. And and what makes it even more what adds the, the, the cherry on top of the cake, Kim, is that um at Wimbledon she also, I think, won singles and doubles. So she did the double double oh, wow. at the All England Club in twenty twelve. And you know, it's 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 interesting. it's funny because you know, I think this was, you know, Serena, you know, obviously at her kind of dominating best and you know, you just think that this was you know, centre court was at home and she was able to like do all these incredible feats. And then, you know, we fast forward to, you know, 2019 and, you know, against Simona Halep, it's like a completely different story. Um, but, you know, at this time, as, yeah, Serena Williams was just almost kind of unplayable, wasn't she? And particularly, you know, in that final, she was just like, right, I want to get on court and I want to get off court as quick as possible. Um, and you know, unfortunately, Sharapova was almost kind of a, you know, a victim to her sort of um, her domination that day. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, Serena Williams, Venus Williams, they're both incredible competitors. And I think you've got to say they're probably... The the Olymp I mean, I know I hate kind of a Kim I mean there's so many different types of goats, I swear, but <laughs> Serena and Venus, I feel like they are they've got to be up there with in terms of like the Olympic the Olympic tennis goats. Oh absolutely. Um I mean just in terms of the fact that they've both each won a, a singles gold and obviously three doubles golds, that's you know, that <laughs> I have no other words apart from the fact that it is amazing. Um and obviously that you know they've won all the grand slam doubles as well like them two playing doubles is a formidable sight um and it, i don't know who out of the two you would say you know who would you say is the better doubles player would you say venus at the net she's a bit more agile for, for doubles i actually think that's why they've been so successful in a doubles court is cuz 
I, you know, I always think Serena is much better from the from the back, and you know, with her, obviously with her ground strokes and her power, and that almost kind of complements Venus, who I think for me is a lot better. You know, going forward, and yeah, as you said, her net play and her volleys. I, I, I always kind of uh, I, my one of my images of like Serena Williams is always kind of like when someone tries to lob her and she goes for a smash. <laughs> I always like feel like she's got like a Jocko smash in her. Oh um, yeah. We'll get onto that later. <laughs> but I always feel that kind of, yeah, for me, I feel like Venus Williams of, if you were kind of, if you're going to ask me who was the better doubles player, I think I would go for Venus Williams. But I think what's been absolutely kind of core success is that, is that they've, their games have kind of complemented each other. And, you know, that's why I think they've been so successful at, at the Olympics. And the fact that, you know, they would have played with each other from, you know, childhood, grown up with each other. Um, and known, you know, the their other others' games inside out would have been, um, you know, makes it, you know, it, it makes these sorts of moments when they come around, sort of, you know, an opportunity, kind of, you know, ready to ready to grasp because. You know, with these sorts of events, it is interesting because it, it does throw it, it. You know, it will throw up pairings who have just coming together by the simple fact that they're, you know they're representing the same country. But um, you know, with someone like the Williams sisters, you, the fact that they're you know they, they grew up together, you know, obviously because of the sisters, um, and have been able to kind of play together all of their life, it just it felt like it almost kind of gives them a level up on, on most of the the competition. Yeah, it's, they don't even need to go through that like awkward getting to know each other phase, do they? They're already there, and that's why they they have been so successful. You know, not just in the Olympics, but you know, they've got a, a doubles career slam, haven't they? So, um, absolutely fantastic. And we will get on to Venus as well in a bit. I know we've sort of mentioned her achievements as well, but um, we, we have dedicated two moments to to the Williamses in total because I just you know they are the queens of the Olympics, um, but. I mean, I would like to say that, um, oh, just another note actually on that before we move on, Joel. I remember Andy Murray was asked about um, uh, by a reporter, you know, when he won his second gold and they said, oh, you know, you're the uh, you're the first tennis player to have won two gold medals or something. And he was like, I think you'll find that, you know, Venus and Serena have about four each. So another classic, Andy, um, yeah, putting the reporters right and calling out the sexism there. Um, but uh, yes, the next moment, number five, is is my favourite moment as a Rafa fan. And that is when he won the, the singles gold in, in Beijing. And, you know, this was literally like a golden year for Rafa. You know, he'd won the French Open, he'd won Wimbledon, he won Queens as well. He won the Rogers Cup. And then he went on and won the Olympics. Um, and the week after winning the Olympics, he overtook Federer as as number one. So it was, you know, a real shift in the hierarchy at the top of the game and, you know, quite a symbolic change as well. You know, Rafa had been trailing Federer for so many years and it was finally his turn, you know, to be at the very top um and yeah he beat beat Gonzalez in the final straight sets so uh yeah to add that to his to his achievements was absolutely fantastic I don't know if you remember watching that Joel like I certainly got up very early in the morning to to tune into that one yeah I feel like it was a it was it it was probably at some uh awful hour of the day wasn't it um but yeah I do you know I think that that Olympics at that moment, it just came at the it just came at the right time, didn't it? And it felt that like what no matter what sort of you know what no matter what event or tennis court 
um, you know, Nadal was kind of stepping on to, you know, it was an opportunity for him to win. And he was, it, you know, he was going through a real kind of purple patch, you know, in that summer of 2008. And, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that the, you know, the Olympics was there in, in Beijing, it, it almost kind of felt it was, you know, it was there for the taking. Absolutely. And the final itself, you know, against Fernando Gonzalez, who we know is very, you know, impressive on a hard court, you know, he can really whip that forehand. And interestingly, when he played Rafa on hard courts previously, you know, Fernando Gonzalez had actually won both of those matches. So by no means was it, you know, cut and dry for Rafa going into the match. I'm sure you know, he was um, going to be quite a handful for, for Rafa. But in the actual final himself, I think Gonzalez was just a little too erratic. He made too many mistakes. He he did have a set point, I think, in the second set. So it was it was close for a bit, but, you know, it wasn't, wasn't enough. I'm pretty sure he played Djokovic in the semi-final and it felt like that. It felt like that was the... It almost felt like that, that was, was the, the gold medal match. This was, yeah. this was like... This was the match to be like, okay who's going to beat Gonzalez in the final? It's either going to be Rafa or Djokovic. And, and that match was a real um, topsy-turvy one because I think Nadal came through it. He lost the second set 6-1. And, you know, it was probably, you know, that third set certainly was, you know, it was quite uh, it was quite close. And I think it's almost kind of in their, you know, if you look at their rivalry, it's probably one of the more underrated matches because the fact that it's fallen in the Olympics and, you know, outside of like the tour, I, I feel like it might, it's it's forgot maybe forgotten a little bit. I get yeah. I think I think you're right. And I mean, all I remember really from this match was that awful uh, overhead that Novak <laughs> missed. I think it was when he was match point down, um, <laughs> and it was just absolutely terrible. And I think ever since then, every time Novak is sort of attempting one, I'm like, oh, is it going to be like the Olympics? Um, which is a bit, I know that's unfair. Is that where the Joko smash was born? I think that is where it was born, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a close match and it could have, you know, for a bit gone either way. And yeah, I certainly do think, um, you know, the winner of that was kind of a dead, well, not dead set of the final, but that was, you know, in a way this was the, the you know, real key match. But I don't think Djokovic, I think Djokovic then went to, on to lose the, um, the, the bronze medal match um so yeah I, I, don't, I can't remember who it was in the other the other bit <laughs> i want to say del i want to say del potro but i could be completely wrong um but um uh, yeah i mean just talking about nadal at the olympics i mean unlike roger federer he has got a singles gold medal and you know kim hopefully tokyo is next year but if we go forward to 2024 that is scheduled to be in Paris, and you could only think that they would put the, um, you know, they would put the tennis there in Marseille. Of course, no, I'm joking. Um, they <laughs> would obviously put it <laughs> Paris Thursday. Why not? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> indoor that would be court. amazing. They put on indoor hardcore. No, <laughs> uh, but you, I mean, you would assume they would put it. I mean, 100, they would put it at Roland Garros. I mean, could you see? Could you see Nadal there, 2024? Maybe is maybe his swan song. I, I'm not. I don't Ooh, know. He could. Yeah, that could be his retirement year. Uh, just like Federer potentially might be making next year his his retirement year. We will see. Um, Rafa would be about. 30, ooh, 30, 30, oh, I can't add up 36 then, <laughs> I think. No, no, that's wrong. 38, I don't know. Any clay court, any clay court, any age, any clay court, any age, he's going to be favourite, especially if it's, a, if it's at Roland Garros. So I think, well, I, hope so. I think that could be, 
I think that could be there for the taking. What, what listeners? Let us know. Do you think? Do you think Rafa's going to? Do you think he would play? Do you think he'd be tempted to be in front of his, in front of uh, um, all the adorning Roland Garros fans uh, at a 2024 Olympics? Let us know. So, Joel, um, we move on to number four in our list and our countdown. And we mentioned this person earlier, but it's Venus Williams. You know, let's go all the way back to Sydney, 2000, which seems a very, very long time ago now. Um, in fact, you know, I was I was still in like primary school. Uh, I was very, very young uh, during this Olympics. But yeah, Venus, you know, we mentioned how Serena had won the singles and doubles in the same games. But Venus actually did it before her sister. She became the first woman to win both the singles and doubles um, at the Olympics, the same Olympics, since it was on the agenda back in, you know, back in the olden days, um, back in the 20s, um, when Helen Wills Moody had done it. So, like, that's, you know, just joining a very, very select few players. And then obviously for Serena to then do it 12 years later, um, to have both of them do it, like, that is sensational. Um I have run out of superlatives. Venus Williams was 20 years old when she became a double Olympic champion, um, you know, in, in tennis, which, uh, you know, I know that I know there are young, I know there are youngsters who've probably done better than that in like gymnastics, I think. Um, but, you know, in the context of tennis, that is, you know, for me, that's why this moment is kind of is higher on the list than kind of Serena, because the fact that she was able to do, this at uh, 20 years old um, is is remarkable. And, you know, I think when we kind of look back on, you know, Venus Williams's career, again, this was, you know, like Serena in, in 2012, 2000 was a really kind of, um, you know, that was one of Venus's kind of purple patch sort of seasons on, on the tour. I think she had won, um, you know, Wimbledon and the US Open, um, like nine days before the the Olympics had begun, so she was in really kind of good form, and she yeah she just carried it on, um, and she she just carried it on, and and as I said, it, it, a little bit like Rafa, it, you know, the Olympics just came at that right moment where, you know, she was in that sort of rich vein of form, and she was just able to kind of carry it through and and blow away the the competition, and um, oh, I feel like we're all touching on all the different uh, <laughs> previous uh, moments here, but yeah, she beat Dementieva in the, in the final. Um, yeah, Dementieva obviously came kind of came back eight years later to to win her own gold. But um, I think yeah, Venus won two and four in quite a comfortable, quite a comfortable singles final, and then yeah, was able to do it with with Serena um, in the in the doubles um, again against against the Netherlands against two players I'm not really familiar with, uh, Christy Bugat and Miriam Oremans. I'm probably saying them <laughs> completely wrong. Apologies, listeners. Um, but um, yeah, it was just like, you know, this was the sort of, this was the start of it. This was the start of kind of the Williams sisters dominance, I think particularly in doubles. And this was like, this is the beginning of a beautiful relationship on a doubles court. Yeah, I've I've never heard of those Dutch players, but you know, I I wasn't really as au fait with tennis as I am now. Then, so uh, they might have been, you know, very big names at the time in in the Dutch doubles world. But yeah, what's interesting as well about this is that Venus actually came out and said afterwards that you know she actually valued the doubles victory more than the singles win. Uh, that it was more precious to her. I think you know playing with her sister um, and you know. I think she just valued that um, as, as sort of, you know, obviously a massive thing, you know, family wise. So, um, yeah, it's just an interesting perspective. I think not a lot of people would 
put the doubles over the singles, even if you were playing with with your sister? Yeah, I think that raises an interesting question because if you had like a sibling rivalry going on, would you rather win a Grand Slam with your sister or would you rather beat them in in the Grand Slam final? And I, you know, I think, you know, there, obviously there is as much about kind of, you know, playing together and, you know, having, you know, sharing a moment, you know, sharing a moment, um, you know, with someone you've, you've obviously grown up with. Um, but also at the same time, on the flip side, I feel like there's a bit of like, you know, if it's like beating them in like a singles final, it's like, yes, I'm the better sibling than you. Um, so I think there's an interesting, I think there's an interesting question there, because I guess that's a sort of thing they've had to deal with their whole career. It's kind of like, you know, you know, uh, you know, what, what, what's kind of sweeter beating your, your, you know, your, your sister or, or, or winning with them? I think for me, I'd rather see them play doubles together. Like as a spectator, I think it's more interesting to watch them play doubles together rather than watching them play singles against each other. Because I think we've seen quite a lot of their singles matches being fairly one-sided and not that great. So um, I know as a spectator, I would rather see them performing together in doubles. Um, but I know the, the Bryan brothers, I think, you know, started out you know, as singles players, but I, I'm sure I was watching like a documentary or or something and like their parents didn't like the thought of them, you know, competing against each other. Um, so I think that was where the idea was forged about them joining up to play doubles together. Yeah, I mean, interesting. That might not have been the only reason, but I think they didn't like the idea of having to battle it out against each other, which is, you know, quite sweet, really. I mean, I don't know, you know, how much truth there is in that, but... Certainly, you know, they decided fairly early on to to form their doubles partnership. And obviously, in, in hindsight, it's pro- proven to be the the best course of action, the best decision for them. Um, but yeah, this was certainly Venus Williams's finest year on tour, I suppose you could say. And obviously, she's 40 now. She's still going, going fairly strong. You know, she's still there and thereabouts, which is amazing. Um, so... Absolute, you know, credit. And and she she has, you know, five Olympic medals. So I suppose she has the most out of any any active player in tennis. She has the most Olympic medals. I think I would be correct to say that. Uh because she she also won the the mixed doubles with, with Rajiv Ram uh many years later. So like Obviously, <laughs> was, did she win that? Or was that silver? She was that she silver. Win that? Or was that Sorry, s- that was a silver. Yeah, she didn't. She didn't win mm. that. Otherwise, that would have been a complete clean sweep, wouldn't it? So, they've got gold and everything. Um, but you know, absolutely amazing. Um, another moment, Joel. Moving on to our, our top three. Yeah, getting to the the big ones. Um, Andy Murray. We cannot not do a countdown and and not talk about Andy Murray. Which which moment is yeah. it? Is it going to be Rio twenty sixteen or is it going to be Wimbledon twenty twelve? Um, I I've made I know we were kind of talking about this and I, I was kind of debating which moment it would be and I, I have to, it has to be it has to be Wimbledon twenty twelve because that just was that was the moment when it all clicked, didn't it? And I I was watching again I was watching highlights of it over the weekend and. You know, the fact that like, I think it was like 28 days earlier, he was in the final on the same court against the same opponent, Roger Federer, losing, I think, his fourth Grand Slam final. Um, You know, there were those tears and, you know, it it was like, oh, when's it going to happen? Oh, it's not happening today. You know, it was a real sort of, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of emotion on that 
on that court and there were a lot of tears as well but then fast forward like a month or so it's like the complete opposite and you know murray you know went got to the got to the final and faced roger federer and kind of blew him away in in three sets um it was just very, it was just very, very surprising. I mean, you know, this is Roger Federer on centre court at Wimbledon in a in a final with a gold medal on the a gold medal on the line. Something you know, Federer you know will have been like, I, I really want one of those. Um, and Andy Murray wins six two, six one, six four, and it was just an absolutely you know fantastic moment, and it 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 set things in motion. And I think that's what we'll kind of you know, think about the most is the fact that it set things in motion. He won the gold. And then actually a few months later, he then went on to win his first Grand Slam at Flushing Meadow uh, in the US Open. Yeah, I think it was a very significant, you know, moment, wasn't it? Between that Wimbledon final with the the, the, the despair, you know, the, the the crying as has become famous and then actually, you know, breaking his slam duck at the US Open. This was kind of the in-between bit that was, you know, if he hadn't have, if he hadn't have won the Olympics, would he have then won the US Open? I don't know. There's a lot of ifs and buts. Um, it's very significant, and to do it at home as well. You know, when you look back at, as a British person, you know, at the 2012 Olympics, you know, it being at home, we remember Super Saturday, don't we? And and I think you know Andy Murray winning gold is also up there as like one of the highlights from that fortnight um, for British success. Um, and in terms of you know. British success at the Olympics. He was the first British man to win the um, tennis gold medal since 1908 when it was, you know, tennis was back on the, back when it was, you know, played back in the day. It's obviously they had a long hiatus. Um, yeah, but it was such a turnaround from that year's, you know, actual Wimbledon final. But I, I do think, you know, obviously Andy won, you know, convincingly and played extremely well, but Federer had had an absolute marathon semi-final. Yeah against Del Potro. I think it was something like 1917 in the deciding set. Um, it was over four it hours. It was long, like so. the longest, yeah, it was like <laughs> the longest match in Olympics history. Yeah. Um, that was a, that was a fantastic match. Oh, I love, so I mean, good. I love the Del, Del Potro has so many good matches where he just comes up short. I doesn't know, he? I know. I mean, it, was, it seems to happen, at, seems to happen at Wimbledon and, um, you know, obviously he, 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 you know, he came back and was in the, you know, in the final, uh in rio and, and and him and murray had a really epic sort of four set encounter as mm. well but um you know murray i mean murray really was um you know on top form through that whole sort of tournament he beat Djokovic as well you know in the semi-finals and you know i do i do wonder and i think it's interesting that you know yes this was at the all england club but the fact that you know up to the final it was a best of three format as opposed to a best of five format. I almost wondered whether, you know, that helped him in the sense that he could have almost kind of treated it as like any other tournament. He didn't need to banish any sort of grand slam demons because it's, it felt like a, it felt like a different event, even though, um, you know, it was played on the, you know, on the, on the turfs of the all England club. Yeah. And it, also I think, you know, I, I went to the um, Olympics at Wimbledon and it, it, it did feel very weird. You know, they had um, all this kind of pink um, court dividers up and, you know, that was the theme. That was the theme colour was this like pink colour, which is, it was a nice colour, but it was, you know, totally different. And they had, you know, I think the, there must have been the Olympic sponsors up and there were, there wasn't much of an atmosphere actually in the grounds because they hadn't really um, sold many tickets for it. Like as in they sold what they had, but they, they didn't have much capacity. Um, because of I don't know the Olympic decision making, there you know there was less 
less matches going on so they didn't want to fill the grounds but um I guess it, it you know for, as a spectator as a fan it, it did feel slightly different so I suppose even as a player it would have felt very different to to Wimbledon you know a month before so I, I don't you know I suppose that might have helped as well um but we also need to mention that you know Andy was in the mixed doubles with with Laura Robson that year and, and they got a silver medal I believe um which was an added bonus, I think, for Andy. You know, they lost to Azarenka and Mernie in the final. Um, but it was very That's close. a pretty good team. That's a pretty good team, isn't it? Oh, Mernie, very Mernie, solid. And Azarenka, one slams, yeah. them two, uh, or at least one slam together. So they they were very, you know, top opponents. But they only just lost. And obviously, to have a silver medal as well, you know, Andy's got three three Olympic medals in total now. Um yeah, that's that's really really great stuff. I always remember from that mixed doubles uh, event. Um, it was like, is he going to play with Laura Robson or is he going to play with Heather Watson? And I don't think Heather Watson was particularly pleased when she found out that. Um, I think she was a bit frustrated, maybe that um, that Murray was going with Robson. Um, I think it was like I like I think that was the, the you know it was the right call at the time. Mm. Um, and I think if you you know you look back on it, it's probably. It's probably the peak. It's probably going to be the peak of of Laura Robson's career. Um, Sadly, I think and, you might be right there. Yeah, yeah, I, and and like you know the fact that she was able to kind of get a you know silver medal. I think that's I think that's the achievement. You know that we're gonna. I think we're gonna have, we're gonna remember her by. To be honest, I mean I'll remember her as well for sending Kim Kleisters into retirement at the US Open and, and getting to the, the fourth round um, and, uh, in, uh, in 2012, actually, just after after that. Oh, Olympics. so that was obviously when she was kind of in peak peak, peak form. But she, I mean, obviously, just as an aside, I, I will also remember her for winning Julia Wimbledon, I think, in 2008 um, as a 15-year-old. Wow. Was she then or 14? Um, that was, a you know, I just remember that being a big thing that year. And obviously, it's such a shame that she's never managed to to fulfil her her potential, I suppose, due to injury. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Andy Murray then, you know, twenty sixteen to defend his Olympic gold medal that was just exceptional. Um, that was a good final with Del Potro. I think it was really hot, wasn't it? That final. Yeah, and it, I always remember. I mean, Del Potro does that classic sort of like he looks like he's absolutely knackered. And then, but then it's still able to sort of run about the court and you're just like <laughs> hoping like, oh, when are you just going to like tire out? Just let Murray win. But no, it was just an absolutely, you know, fan- it was an absolutely fantastic match. And, you know, I almost kind of think Rob injury has kind of robbed us of a really kind of great rivalry there between mm. Murray and Del Potro because they, I always feel like whenever they both step onto a court, they put on such a, they put on such good and entertaining matches for the crowd because they're so they're both such personalities, but they're both such excellent tennis players as well. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll always kind of I'll always remember that final as well because the fact that he was able to back it up, um, you know, it, it, to give him two two gold medals um, in in singles competitions, uh, you know, back to back is 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 a very Im- impressive achievement. And I think Andy was the flag bearer, wasn't he, for the for the last Olympics, twenty sixteen? Did he did he carry the flag at the opening ceremony? Yes, I think he did. There was a lot of tennis players who who actually were carrying flags. Uh, I may be wrong, but I think that's such a big honour as well, and it shows you know one's appreciation. I know Rafa uh, carried the flag. I think Wozniacki. There was a lot of tennis players actually who 
who were flag bearers, which was really nice to see. Definitely. Um, so yeah, let's move on now to our top two picks for dramatic moments in the last uh, in the last two decades at the Olympics. And number two on our list is the surprise 2004 double gold medal winning Ch- Chilean Chilean uh, Nicholas Masu, who um, I mean, this again is like a very it's just an amazing story because you know Nicholas Masu uh, you know he's he said it was a very solid player but you know you always felt he was in the um as a singles competitor he was almost kind of in the shadow of his compatriot um Fernando Gonzalez and um you know really he the fact that he went to the the Olympics in 2004 on a hard court um where he showed not really a great deal of form on uh you know leading up to it to come out with two gold medals and play seven hours of tennis kim on one day and win both matches i mean it was it was an incredible story yeah i mean i think he was seeded 10th in this olympics i think he was ranked 14th at the time so he wasn't you know a complete outsider but um obviously wasn't probably being talked about for meddling especially not twice um absolutely amazing uh he was obviously just in exceptional form and i guess you know keep kept on winning and winning and that just kind of propelled him on because um yeah he had the doubles uh victory to begin with and that was an absolute marathon match it's five sets they him and gonzalez were four match points down i think uh, and they came back uh, against, I think... Four gold medal points down, Kim. Well, oh, okay. Four I mean, gold is... medal points down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that finished, like, after midnight. Um, and then they obviously had to get get their medals for that, for the doubles, and then uh, do all the, you know, ordinary stuff that you'd have to do at the end of the match. Um, I think he, you know, he wouldn't have had an awful lot of sleep. And then he was back on court for the singles final, like, later that afternoon. So I don't know how he managed to come through it because... Uh, the singles final was another five five sets and you know several hours long against Mardi Fish. Um, so I don't know. He was obviously just just using that kind right. of he must momentum. Have been running on fumes. Yeah, he must mm. have been running on complete empty. I think um, Mardi Fish sort of said, you know, um, he just seemed to be getting you know better as as the final went on and you know although he was tired to begin with i think he had to have a few sort of leg massages to to get him going um he just kind of ended almost stronger than when he began so it's just oh just it is amazing and you know he's we we're talking about venus and serena having won both in the same olympics but obviously you know, nicholas masu quite randomly also did it <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think this story for me shows you like the the power that the Olympics can have, and you know the the power and the influence of sort of playing for your nation. And it's like even if you're knackered, and you know, I think Masu got he got to bed at like four thirty the night before, uh, four thirty a.m. the night before his sort of singles final. It just shows you that I think that you know when you have something like the you know the Olympics to play for it almost kind of gets rid of that any sort of tiredness you might be feeling and you know it's like right I'm in an Olympic final I want to rise to the occasion um, and I'm not going to let anything stop me and I felt that you know someone like Masu um, you know South American very passionate player um, it, it was just sort of you know it was that sort of passion I guess for you know doing well for your country um, who I you know I think they Chile had never won 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Chile had never won a gold medal before. So there was almost history, history making, uh, you know, at stake here. And um, yeah, I think that's really kind of, you know, what kind of almost kind of spurred him on. And and it was interesting to kind of hear him, you know, afterwards kind of talk about the event. And it's the fact that, you know, after that, his, you know, his, it's almost like his name changed forever. The fact that he was Olympic champion wherever he went, it meant that, you know, no matter what he had done in like his, you know, previous career up to that point he was always going to be remembered from then on as an olympic champion yeah i mean it's it's sort of for chile you know it's quite a small nation in terms of olympic you know sporting success so he was obviously an absolutely you know massive star in terms of his achievements um and also, you know, Gonzalez as well, um, having got the the doubles gold here and then, you know, later on the, the single silver in 2008. <laughs> I think their tennis players must must be the most successful Olympians for them. Kim, just to give you an idea of how um, of how much of an underdog he was, I found a little stat that said he had not won a hardcore hard court match all year in 2004 and was zero for eight until the first round of the Olympics. So... It was like he, uh, you know, yes, he was, yeah, he was seated, but like the fact he, his hard court was not, is not his, um, you know, forte. And, um, you know, he didn't, he, he didn't have, he didn't have form going in. And, um, you know, it, it was almost kind of like he had that sort of underdog status, not necessarily because of, you know, he was facing Marty, you know, fish in the final. I think it was more to do with the fact that, you know, he, he wasn't really that known to, he wasn't really that good on a hard court. I know. I mean, it's just because you do think, oh, yes, you know, he's a Chilean player, clay court. You know, that's going to be his his speciality. But um, I think what's also funny is that, you know, he obviously fell down the, the rankings, um, which, you know, that isn't funny in itself. But when it came to the Olympics, you know, in 2008, um, he had to get a wild card to compete um, at that Olympics because his ranking wasn't high enough. Um you know, I suppose, you know, if anyone's going to be a good, um, a good advert for a wild card, it's, you know, the reigning champion. Um, but he didn't, he sadly didn't go very far because he lost in the second round. So, um, wasn't to be a second time round. Otherwise, that really would have been a bit of a fairy tale, you know, to do it <laughs> twice. <laughs> so, before we get to our number one moment, we're just going to have a few quick honourable mentions. Uh, we've already spoken about Murray versus Del Potro um, at the Rio uh, 2016 Olympics, which for me was an absolutely you know, fantastic moment and really kind of sealed Murray's status as one of the you know, greatest, I guess, tennis Olympians uh, in, the, in the male game, you know, since certainly since kind of 2000 with you know, back-to-back golds. Um, but Kim, uh, I know you have fond memories of, of Rafa winning doubles gold as well in, in 2016. Yeah, I'm so like pleased with this because for Rafa to have both singles and doubles, I think that's like, you know, the full set. It's great. Um, and also, you know, he did it with Mark Lopez, who I'm also a big fan of. And, you know, they they <laughs> played together and won tournaments together before this. Um, mm. They, you know, they're best mates. They you know, obviously get on like a house on fire and they've had success before. But so for them to team up was just, you know, so lovely. Um, and I never, you know, you don't expect, you know, when, when they entered, you don't expect them to go and win it. Like, so this was just such a like nice added bonus and I remember I think that weekend I, I wasn't feeling very well I was like on the sofa just like oh and you know it was just such a nice uh little you know pick me up and they, they won pretty comfortably um 
like, you know, throughout, like it was, um, well, they had against Magea and Takao in the final Romanian pair. So, I mean, it was, it was, they were, they were down actually in the last set and I think they came back, but I don't know. I kind of had this like inner belief that they would do it. And I just thought it was such a, a nice moment. Cause uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a massive Rafa fan, so I won't go on about it too much, but um, <laughs> it was, it was a lovely little, lovely little thing. Cause I think that year Rafa came like fourth in the singles. He, he lost his bronze medal match, I think to Nishikori. So um, it was nice that he was able to get the doubles gold. Um, but yeah, that's enough of that. Let's, let's talk about our, our number one moment, Joel, because I think this one will does take some beating because it was pretty out of the blue, would you say? Definitely. It was one of those where I think this person had said, it is my dream to win Olympic gold medal. And I heard that and I was like, oh, that's great. Good for you. And I, I didn't think like that it had any sort, that wasn't going to be, that wasn't happening in any sort of way, shape or form like ever in, in my book. Yeah, it was um, totally not the person that you would have expected to have won um, the <laughs> singles gold uh, in 2016 for the women's side. Um, and we are, of course, talking about Monica Puig uh, winning Olympic gold for Puerto Rico. Um, she beat Kerber in the final, um, but she also managed to beat Muguruza in the quarterfinals and Kvitova in the semifinals. So that's, you know, that's three Grand Slam champions right there that she has just taken out. And, you know, Monica Puig, she, she, at the time, she was 34 in the world, um, massive underdog, to kind of suddenly go on a run of form and go all the way um, and to become the first woman representing her country to win an Olympic medal. You know, that is amazing for her country um for, for women's sport in her country and you know for her own career as well um you, you know you don't see that happening very often and she played so so well particularly for women as well because i think up to that point puerto rico had had won medals at the the olympics but they had all been by male athletes mm. so i'm sure that you know when pui was you know able to kind of win a gold medal the fact that she was able to inspire you know, a generation back at home and a female generation as well. It, it kind of, I think it probably did wonders there. And as you said, she, she did it the hard way. I mean, she had to take out three Grand Slam champions to, you know, to, you know, to win the gold medal. And I mean, it's just, it was just really impressive the way, you know, the way she did it. And I thought, you know, each, each sort of time, each you know, round she got, I was like, Oh, that's a, that's great, and now she, but now she's going to go out. But no, she just kept on, she just kind of kept on fighting. And again, I think it's a similar sort of situation to to Masu, where kind of, you know, you can the fact that you can kind of leverage the, you know, playing for your nation and the sort of, you know, if you can channel that passion in in the right way, it can really elevate your game. And you know, in terms of Monica Pui, it it elevated her to a, you know, it elevated her getting her game to a level we. You know, we've probably not we've not seen since. I don't even think we're going to see it again, to be honest. Um, but it elevated her, her to a point where she was just able to just kind of go on this run of form that just you know it was impossible. It was impossible to stop, no matter you know who the who the opponent was across the across the net. Yeah, and obviously after this, you know, she was probably very very drained. But you sort of thought, oh, you know, what's she going to go on to do at the US Open? You know, her career, you know, could massively you know, go up a notch um, now that she's got this under her belt. 
But, um, you know, it, she hasn't really replicated this form. She hasn't really, um, you know, made a, a big name for herself in, you know, on the WTA tour since since this, you know, period. So it's it's almost like, yeah, was it a flash in the pan? You know, this probably will be the pinnacle of her career. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't think there's anything to, you know, the fact that she hasn't maybe gone on to, to perform exceptionally well at slams, that doesn't take anything away, you know, from this kind of 10 days or so um, in the summer of 2016. You know, this is probably an absolute perfect, um, you know, moment for her and and um yeah i just like remember watching thinking wow i did not see that one coming <laughs> it's interesting you talk about the you know you know when you when you actually do win it and and the side almost kind of what happens next i think it's you know i think this is certainly in contrast to you know andy murray winning gold you know uh, uh, in 2012 and it kind of you know it, it showed him what was achievable and he went on to win you know, the US Open and then Wimbledon the following year and then become world number one. But, you know, with someone like Monica Pui, it was like, you know, it, it felt like, you know, this happened and not and not really a lot's happened, happened since. And, you know, I think kind of in the, you know, the following months um, after Rio, she kind of admitted there was a bit of a hangover about the Olympics. And it, it just shows you what, how much it, I think it just shows you how much it means, you know, to these players, the fact that, you know, you're going to be always, you're going to be always spoken about as an Olympic champion. And it's like going back to those memories, I guess, you know, they're hard to kind of get out of, get out of your mind when, you know, you've got to go back onto, you know, the, the WTA tour back to sort of, you know, come crashing down to earth, back to sort of the, the daily grind, um, where you've just had such a, you know, a historic run, um, you know, the, the, um, yeah just had a historic run that will kind of cement yourself probably in you know in your country's folklore exactly i mean listeners what what do you think do you think this is the right choice for for the the most dramatic olympic moment of the last well of this millennium um what do you think let us know your thoughts because obviously we've we've counted down a, a handful of moments but Obviously, there's there's a lot more. Perhaps you've got a more niche moment that you'd like to to tell us. Um, so do do let us know on social media because um, there's you know we we've only sort of probably touched the tip of the iceberg, haven't we, Joel? Yes, yeah, certainly. And um, you know, I think I certainly think Monica for me, Monica Capri is 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 the number one. Uh, no, the, uh, it's just a kind of a final point. The WTA called it um, one of the the upsets of the the decade, and I was genuinely trying to think about if there was any more sort of on any other sort of upsets I could I could think of and I gen- I genuinely think this is probably for me it's probably number 1 in terms of uh, you know over, as I said over since 2010 certainly um you know just in in tennis in general it's just been a, a great moment for the game and just shows you that you know even with talk of like all the you know the top players it, the olympics just brings that something different to the to the party that means that you know any anyone can do it if you you know if you if you if you believe it and you can and you can grasp it exactly um wouldn't we love to be up there you know imagine competing in the olympics show <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what my my sport would be definitely not tennis because i can't play to save my life um maybe something like rhythmic gymnastics i could um oh. twiddle a ribbon and throw a ball um i love it <laughs> disastrously i i reckon oh what would i do 
hockey? race walking or something race walking oh, hockey. <laughs> well you're running marathons now so you could probably run not walk um but yes <laughs> uh yeah listeners um yeah i hope you've enjoyed this countdown uh of our top eight most dramatic olympic moments uh from the turn of the millennium remember you can subscribe to us if you have enjoyed listening to this episode on wherever you're listening to us whether that's on apple podcasts on spotify we're also on overcast Castbox, stitcher and uh, if you have been listening to us on Apple Podcasts, make sure to leave us a rating and comment. And if you uh, know any tennis friends who you think would be interested in a tennis podcast, spread the word about the passing shot because we would really appreciate it. Exactly. And you can follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, at Passing Shot Pod. Uh, so do let us know your thoughts. If you've got any questions or any, um, you know, any moments from us, uh, from our episode today that you'd like to add. Uh, or you can email us as well, uh, PassingShotPod at gmail.com. Yes. And uh, we'll be back next week for another episode of The Passing Shot as we get closer well hopefully we get closer to the start of the season again so i hope you can join us for that but in the meantime i hope you're safe i hope you're well as usual and uh, we'll we'll see you next time kim i really really hope they do play paris 2024 at paris bercy i think that would just be absolutely absolutely hilarious and you've got like you know famous clay courts on your doorstep but please just do it on an, on an indoor hard surface after they went to the trouble of putting a roof as well on chat <laughs> what a kick in the teeth for the french tennis uh, federation there